Hello, my name is Patricia Rodriguez, and this podcast is part of a community engagement project examining the links between migration, dispossession, racial injustice, and the right to stay. A team from Cornell University, the Ithaca area community in central New York, and a rural community in El Salvador is working together on a grassroots transnational network to produce knowledge, especially on how the processes of migration, prejudice, violence from state and non-state actors, and immigration enforcement in the United States impact migrants from El Salvador and Central America. We want to shed light on how individuals and community members that stay behind in El Salvador and those that migrate envision change and construct options um, and a future of living with dignity, with justice, with peace. As U.S. and Central American officials sit to negotiate their ideas of political and economic solutions, there's a need to envision and to take seriously the solutions and visions and ideas that brew from communities and people most affected by a harsh system of heavily militarized borders, of gruesome incarceration, and abuse of immigrants in detention centers and jails across the United States. What can we learn from what is happening to them here in the United States and there in their homes, lands, and communities in Central America? This podcast is the first one of a series and it focuses on journalist Todd Miller's contributions, works that highlight not only the depths and the roots of colonial and post-colonial era border arrangements and the heavy militarization and externalization of borders, but also on how communities throughout the global south are finding ways to keep popular knowledge, alternative political and economic models alive via a constant resistance and powerful and risky forms of disrupting the normalized border apparatus. These excerpts that you will hear are from a talk by Todd Miller at Ithaca College in October. And he starts by explaining the financial aspects of the massive surveillance apparatus at borders and how it impacts migrants, families, and their communities. You just look at the budgets for CBP and ICE, Border and Immigration Enforcement from when the George W. Bush administration took office in 2001 to the end of his administration in 2008. It went from $5 billion annual budget to $15 billion. So we're looking at really, really, really dramatic <coughs> increases of um, budgets and this just massive fortification of the U.S.-Mexico border, but not only the U.S.-Mexico border. One thing that really actually prompted didn't prompt, but it was one of the things that I really went into writing my first book, Border Patrol Nation, was the fact that I went to the Buffalo Greyhound Station in 2007. And I'm, at this point, I've been living in Arizona for a long time. And, and I saw two uh, um, forest green uniformed Border Patrol agents walking through the Greyhound Station in Buffalo um, looking for people. At the time, I was with a man from Oaxaca. And uh, he looked at me and said, how long before they come over and uh, ask me? And we guessed like a minute or five minutes. And lo and behold, they were there within a few minutes. Um, luckily, he had his papers to be in the US. But they did find another person who didn't. And I'll never forget it, because they arrested him, put, put uh, handcuffs on him, and then made him return his uh, 
gray ticket in front of everyone. So he, he had to approach the ticket counter with his, his hands together, handcuffed, and then had to like give the ticket back like that. The kind of jurisdiction allows, as one Border Patrol agent or CBP agent told me in Washington when I did interviews in their headquarters in Washington, we are exempt from the Fourth Amendment. The Fourth Amendment, of course, is your right not to be searched nor seized. So you could have, there could be a checkpoint and reasonable suspicion is enough for you to be interrogated or have your stuff searched. Todd Miller does investigative journalism and the reporting of news from the perspective of being an eyewitness. In doing so, he opens access for his readers to understand a lot about how decisions are made and how industries of war and surveillance technology gain terrain. By understanding some of these details and justifications by powerful government officials, one can begin to discern important elements of the system, a global system of militarized borders, which is what he describes in his book, Empire of Borders. So what I would do is I go to conventions where there were, were hundreds of vendors from different companies would congregate with different technologies that they were selling to Department of Homeland Security officials who would also show up there. And I covered these sorts of conventions for years. And it was really interesting because you get a really, really close up view of this partnership between the private industry and the government and watching deals be made, watching how vendors will sell their products. And, the, and, and going into these convention centers, with, normally they're in convention centers, is you go into these places where um, it's almost like going into a crystal ball into the future of what's being imagined for the future of the border in terms of you'll see like robots crawling everywhere, you see drone systems set up, you see biometric Biometrics mean, meaning like fingerprinting, digital fingerprinting, iris scanning, facial recognition. You see all kinds of different surveillance cameras, aerostats. Aerostats are like surveillance balloons with, with cameras. All that um, all condensed into one place and with hundreds of companies selling, trying to sell their products to either Department of Homeland Security or various police departments that are along the border or Immigration and Customs Enforcement in the interior. So what I did was I was looking at U.S. externalization programs, of which means the extension of the U.S. border to other countries. And so I followed the money through different programs that Department of Homeland Security was using to different places, including uh, the Mexico-Guatemala border, the Guatemala-Honduran border, the Dominican-Haiti uh, border, the Kenya-Somalia border, the Jordanian-Syrian um, border, the Philippines, which they have a co whole Coast Guard that was getting trained by the U.S., um, among other places. And just to see how these programs are working, how, as officials say, we're extending the zone of security and really following the different programs, how they send resources, training, how there's pressure on different countries to build up their borders, and how this idea of extending the border is a significant part of U.S. border strategy that no one really knows about, right? When Mexico is deporting more Central Americans than the United States and never even reaches our border, you know, that doesn't reach our border at all, doesn't reach our news media, nobody ever hears about it. So this, so that was, that book was, a, was looking at this extension and I knew that was happening from my previous work, but when I started really looking into it 
I was just, I was even flabbergasted that of the extent of it. I didn't even realize the extent of it. Like in more than a hundred countries, there has been U.S. border programs. We're constantly just fed lies about what the border is. The idea of protecting, like customs and border protection, or the idea of security, is a misnomers. That this whole massive thing needs to be unpacked and really looked at, and that the conversation around it is stuck in a paradigm that's very limited and really needs to be shaken up and have many different ideas and thoughts about it based on the reality of what it is and what it does. Um, it's not based on human security at all. Like the idea of well-being of humanity, it's not based on that at all. It's based on the protection of something else, maybe bigger systems, uh, but not about the protection of people. The whole, the whole system itself on the, like on the U.S.-Mexico border is through a prevention through deterrence strategy, which is designed to purposely to make things as dangerous as possible for people crossing. Um, and then for people living in the borderlands, nobody talks about feeling secure. Everyone talks about feeling threatened. Nobody likes to have to go through border patrol checkpoints if they have to go to the doctor's office. Nobody likes getting pulled over randomly by the border patrol. And so this idea of, of security, it really just, it's sad in a way that's almost unconscious, but it's, it's a term that sincerely needs to be taken out and looked at. Or what my argument is, is that there would be more justice in the world if these borders did not exist at all. It's like, it's like when Ruth Wilson Gilmore, who I bring up in the book, um, talks about prison, you know, through the years of prison abolition, I think her quote is, I might be misremembering, but it's 1% about destroying the prison. So the word abolition often has that, we will destroy this, right, quality to it. But she'll say it's like 1% about destroying the prison and then 99% of creating a world of justice where prisons are not, are not needed, quote unquote needed. And so I like applying that to the border. You know, what, what we're really looking for is a world of, you know, you could call it abolition or you could call it creating another world of, justice that and how does that how does that happen and how what steps are needed and so the steps could be huge ones or small ones it could be really really small steps that everyone that most people would probably agree with that we should do um and uh but working towards this bigger goal um what one thing that's interesting about um on looking at at like the idea of open like open borders, for example, um, is that when when if open borders are mentioned, it seems like everyone thinks about the same thing, right? The somebody at the border at the U.S. say the U.S.-Mexico border, um, and it's it's rarely does is it brought up that if you bring up open borders, is it about who had that there already is a system of open borders. And that system of open borders is um, is um, at another level, right? Like if you look at the North American Free Trade Agreement, for as one example, that that whole agreement is about making open borders for big companies um, to cross uh, these borders that are otherwise fortified for people. Um, they cross them at like thirty-five thousand feet, and on like on an airplane. Like nobody stops them. Their border patrols are made for really people who have been dispossessed, who have been 
um, displaced who are in desperate situations, really, and not for um, a whole other set of people that can go wherever they please. And by people, I mean even people with a U.S. passport, you can like go to more than like 170 countries versus if you're like if if you have a passport from Iraq, you can go to 20 countries, right? And so this sort of this sort of like who can go across borders, who can't, but also the opening of borders to a certain set of people, and that's and I and I when you ask that question, Patricia, that's what I think of. It's that's been the relationship with the United States with Latin America for dec for centuries. You know, the the U.S. can go into Latin America and do whatever it wants. Like for example, the story in Guatemala. You know, there's so many people coming up from from Guatemala. The history there is just never talked about when and what's going on today, and it should be, because how can you not talk about what's going on in Guatemala without talking about uh, the 1954 CIA instigated coup that um, ousted the democratically elected president of Guatemala, Jacobo Arbenz, who was trying to do land reform in land owned by the Boston-based United Fruit Company uh, and, and, give, and redistribute fallow land that wasn't being used to campesinos in Guatemala. And then that then caused uh, an uproar and then eventual coup and then a 36-year military dictatorship in Guatemala that killed an estimated 200,000 people by military mainly by a military that was financed and trained by the United States so how, i mean how can you not not look at those this history that's you know the police, the the peace accords were in 1996 and not think why you know the United Fruit Company just crossed the border with no border patrol stopping the United Fruit Company, even though it was taking over land that could have been used by Guatemalans. The U.S. military crossed the border and did training in Guatemala. You know, this is just one example of many different companies that, that I would say an open border policy has been happening and maintained and even enhanced over the years and to this very, very day. And you, so you look at all this and you look at the different ways that things have progressed in places like Guatemala and El Salvador and the histories and looking at via the lens of U.S. policy. There's just no way you can't, in my eyes, that you can't look at displacement that's happening there without those, the sort of bigger context. And then further, like the economic, I mean, you can go in on and on about it, but like economic restructuring, the structural adjustment programs, that were coming from the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, um, how ec economies were, were designed to favor oligarchies and corporations over, over people. And then as you go further and further, you get into, uh, you know, I mean, we can go on and on about <laughs> all this stuff, but, but definitely, you know, like now you have the additional um, you know, ecological things that are happening and more and more intensely in, in Central America has become, as one example, has become a really hot spot for um, be, being that it's isthmus, being that there's some severe drought situations that have been happening more and more intensely over the last decade, and the, and the hurricanes that have, that have hit super hard on its coast, among many other things, have just amplified a kind of convergence, what, 
um, of, of things. And, and then when even thinking of that, even thinking of, if you want to think in terms of climate change, the United States has, and this is like crossing the borders again, is historically responsible for 30.1% of, of greenhouse gas emissions since 1850. And how, how much do you think Guatemala is? Does anybody have any guess of, if the United States is over 30%, of greenhouse gas emissions since 1850, what do you think Guatemala, what percentage do you think Guatemala? Around zero. Around zero, exactly right. 0.026%. And uh, Honduras, El Salvador, it's similar. Haiti, even less. I think Haiti is 0 0.00. Yeah, Haiti and for the climate index, for the country's most response, um, most impacted by climate change in the last 20 years is number one with Myanmar, those two countries. I don't know, so you see like all this, um, I would call part of an open, like there's an open border policy in, in place of, of things that are, are not being, the border patrols are, are only made one way, not, not two ways. An interesting question is posed by an audience member from Central America. They ask, what ways would this thinking about a borderless world actually help migrants? So the way the, way the um, border enforcement system is set up is, say, we'll just keep it simple and look at the U.S.-Mexico border. Um, it's set up to make things incredibly more dangerous for people crossing the border, um, if not mortal. In fact, if you look at the prevention through deterrence strategy when it was um, announced in 1994, there's a border patrol memorandum that said it could, you know, is being designed to put people in mortal danger. Like they would blockade the traditional crossing places like the cities and with laws, more agents and surveillance technology. And that would force people to circumvent and go into what was the deterrent, which is the desert. Or it could be like, it doesn't even apply just to our, the US-Mexico border. Of course, it applies to What's going on in Europe, what you see in Europe, people crossing the Mediterranean or in other places as well. Um, it's this idea that, the, the, that it makes the journey so dangerous uh, and that is supposed to deter people. So without that, um, it seems like it would alleviate, for people in the situation of having to be in migration, it would alleviate so many dangers to their lives to, and that, that's not even mentioning, you know, that's looking at death, but it's also, there's uh, other like obstacles like incarceration. There's such a criminalization just by crossing the border. Um, since the mid 2000s, the US has policies that if you cross the border, it's a, you're, you can be charged with a crime and put in prison. And there's a thing called Operation Streamline, which actually puts people if you, if you get caught crossing and you get sent to the court, you're gonna face 30 to 180 days in a prison. So that's part of the like deterrence as well. So you take all that stuff away and it seems to me at least it would alleviate so much. Like the whole design of the border is an affliction of suffering upon people, right? And, and to, take that away, to take that away would um, at least alleviate, if you just, focus on the enforcement apparatus itself and it would alleviate much of that suffering and uh, make it easier for people to travel. 
you know, there are, there are a lot of, a lot of different conversations that could be had. I would, I mean, the, the, the arguments that are out there today are just pretty much all like, like, oh, this is going to cause this, you know, or opening the borders is going to do this and this and this, or like, there's all kinds of studies on all the different things that people might say. There's, I've heard like arguments around economics, around crime, around a number of different issues, right? And uh, there's, there's just study after study, like the economics and the crime that just debunk a lot, almost all of what anyone says in, in this sphere. So there's, there's all, there's all, there already is like empirical rigorous studies that you can just cite to people. I have them in, I, I do cite them in Bill Burgess, Not Walls. Um, but it gets, but you but even in those arguments, you're stuck in this, in this, this certain paradigm of what I'm trying to do. And I think it goes back to Patricia's question is look at like the U S responsibility in, in this stuff too. Like this, it like almost extricates the U S like the U S being part of the displacement problem that we're seeing around the world, especially in in Latin America, Central America, Caribbean, doesn't seem to be making it in these conversations, that, and which I think is a huge omission. I mean, how can you not? I think if those, those sorts of conversations could be had in good faith, where we could honestly talk about, like, look at different US economic policies, look at its ecological policies, look at its military policies, and really have an honest conversation. Like, how does this influence life how has this and how does this influence life in a place like Guatemala, Guatemala, since we've been talking about Guatemala. It seems important to open up these conversations, these debates around the idea of open borders or no borders, but also to hear more of the voices of those that have been affected by the growth of this unequal economic and political global system and what it has been like for those who migrate and also for those who stay in their lands or are fighting to stay, and what visions these people have. These stories will be part of our future podcasts. Stay tuned.